Chris Romano. What's going on, bro? Hey, man. How are you? <laughs> good, man. Good. So I hadn't seen you in a while. Uh, we got we got to catch up a little bit not too long ago. A friend of ours passed away. Yeah. Bad way to catch up. It sucks, you know. Right. Yeah. But was, uh, uh, you know, I had a meeting on those terms. But, yeah. You know, that's that's kind of how it worked out. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you, man. I'm gonna take it all the way back, bro. So. uh I've only known you a couple of years and we've never actually got to hang out that much, but right. I know you've had some, you know, you've had an interesting life past and you've done a lot of things and landed in a great spot now. So it's kind of want to talk about that transition. Yeah, man. Um, you know, first of all, the really, I guess the, the only reason that I agreed to, to do this today <laughs> is really because I, my, my end goal is for, you know, to help someone out with this information, if it's if it's possible, uh, if this just helps one person, maybe that Nick watches this or you know listens to it, then I feel like it's a uh, success for for myself because the chain of events, you know, that uh, that have happened in my life are you know pretty wild, and <laughs> it's funny that I know a lot of people here in the local community, of, you know, Shreveport and in business business networking groups and whatnot I've been in and and uh, nobody knows this about <laughs> me. so I'm sure that uh, there, there may be a few surprised you know people to uh, hear my story and and you know it, it is embarrassing for me because uh, nobody likes to look back on their lives and think about you know bad stuff that they've done or you know situations that they've gotten into that they shouldn't have but you know, in retrospect, it's all part of growing up, and it's it's what you do. Um, you know, with learning, you know, going through those experiences and learning from it, and moving on, and, and doing you know the right thing after that. So, <clears throat> you're right. We we don't know each other that well, right? Um, so you did not know my story, and you told me to just save it because you wanted to do this podcast. Yeah, we had a we had a uh, we were at Jim's funeral, and uh, God rest his soul, we were having a couple a couple of cocktails afterwards and uh we started it got brought up in conversation i was like we need to wait we need to talk about this because I, I like to experience stuff organically man right and like th that way there's no there's no hiding the reaction right like yes. we, we you tell me and i'm like i'm processing it right then you haven't right. told me before we sit down so i yeah, you know this is uh definitely the first time you're hearing anything yeah well yeah and uh i'm a little bit you know nervous but but I'm going to get through this, man. But uh, <laughs> just for folks that don't know me, uh, giving you just a little bit of background on, you know, who I am, where I came from and all of that. So my dad, uh, he immigrated over here. Um, actually, his father immigrated from, from Italy. And uh, my dad was actually born in New York. When he turned 17, he joined the Navy, left, and uh, my mom was from the South. My mom was teaching school in Florida. Anyway, they met. That's how my mom and dad got together. But my dad was a Navy pilot, so I've always been, like, you know, raised under, uh, like, a military school, strict background. Um, you know, he was all about crossing T's, dotting his I's, and just being very organized on, throughout life. But um, my upbringing was, was great. You know, I had great parents. Uh, they taught me well they, they they taught me what's right what's wrong and uh and even though i knew you know uh 
from them telling me years and years and years, uh, you know, do this, don't do this. Um, eventually, when I got into this situation later in life, I knew this is not what, you know, how my parents raised me to be, and that's really when I became very ashamed of myself. And looking back on it, it's very embarrassing. But uh, but I had a good childhood. Get on up to high school, you know, uh, sports. I was very active in sports. I never, you know, did really drink or do any drugs at all. Um, and what sports did you play? And I was a. Uh, I, I played football, but my my biggest sport, I guess, I, what I excelled at was track and field. Okay, what what you what you do in track? Um, I was a pole vaulter. Really? Yeah, dude, that's that was a that was something I I, uh, <clears throat> I dabbled in, but um that's that was a very unique skill set right there. Well, I had a little bit, I guess, of an advantage. Um, in Texas, they like to start pole vaulting in seventh grade. Yeah. Louisiana, you can't start until the ninth grade. Well, because I'm a military brat, you know, moving back and forth. Uh, so, I lived in. East Texas part of my life, lived in, you know, Northwest Louisiana area, you know, the other half of my life predominantly. And whenever I was, you know, living in Texas, I started pole vaulting in the seventh grade and I just had a natural ability to, yeah. to do it. And uh, so my ninth grade, we ended up moving to Benton and then I started going to school out there and they had a pole vault fit. So I'm like, hey, I'll, I'll keep doing this. And I ended up winning state my junior year that's awesome and that um i guess that summer i got selected to go to europe on the junior olympics team and uh, and then i got to vault in liverpool London. no shit what yeah so, dude i i'm i'm aggravated that we didn't talk about this my wife was set state records in texas for pole vaulting uh, we didn't talk about this she's she, gonna be excited bro she's gonna be excited when i tell her this i had no so, idea so yeah i uh <laughs> I was trained by um, this Don Hood world-class pole vault camp. Like there was no coaches around here that knew anything about pole vault to really help me excel at. Yeah. So uh, every summer, my mom would let me go to uh, one of these pole vault camps, whether it be in Dallas or like in Monroe, and uh, it was a three-day event. But each time I would go to this camp, this guy would add like a foot onto my jump, which was significant That's a lot because, you know once you max out you're going up three inches at a time is you know a good game but for him to be stacking a foot or, or a little more onto my jump every time i would see him uh it helped me excel and anyway i, I ended up going to liverpool going into the meet i was ranked like 13th you know there was a lot you know better vaulters than than me there um but it started pouring down, raining during the meet, and it was about 40 degrees and windy. Well, whenever it got rainy and wet and cold here, I would still practice in all ah. I would practice in whatever weather I could, unless it was just lightning coming in. Hell yeah, okay, okay. So it wasn't anything new for me. And I guess that's where I found my edge over there in that track meet and guys were slipping, you know, whether it be their feet slipping or they plant the pole and their hands would slip, their grip, you know, slipping. Was there, was that people from all over the world? All over the world. Because <clears throat> yeah. it's funny because like that, that area is always rainy and cold, right? You yeah. know, so you would think if anyone was local, but they may not have been, you know. They had some, you know, the local guys, um, you know, but Russia, Japan, I mean, they were, they were all there and 
somehow, man, I ended up coming out on top on that knee. No shit. And yeah, so in what was your uh, height? In um, sixteen three was my best. You know, whenever I was in, in that age. Damn, dude, that's but, crazy. Uh, yeah, but uh, I won that meet there because it was raining uh, with like fourteen nine. That's still impressive, man. Raining and cold. Yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, but but I was a consistent, you know, 14-9 jumper, you know, rain, snow, or sleet. Um, it's just what I practice in. I just tried to, um, you know, be as prepared as I could for, you know, whatever rain or weather was in front of us, uh, you know, at the meet. We can't ever uh, control that part. But, but anyway, uh, there was two meets overseas, uh, Liverpool, London, and Paris, France. So after this meet was over with, they put us on that Eurostar train that goes 187 miles an hour underneath the English Channel. And you can't even hardly tell you're moving, especially it's dark, you know, in there. And so we're just cruising. And then all of a sudden we start feeling ourselves slow down. And we know by the time we shouldn't be there yet. Our train broke down in this tunnel. Under the ocean. Under the ocean. Holy shit. So I'm like, all right, what now? So this tunnel is basically a double tunnel, okay? So what they did, we were going from Liverpool to Paris and our train breaks down. So they ran another train up beside ours in this tunnel and everybody switched over, right? And we went on to Paris. They towed this train back to Liverpool to the train yard to work on it. My poles were still on. Oh shit. They never got trained. Oh shit. And a pole is not something you can just go borrow from someone. No. Because they're rated for your weight. And, you know, so I didn't get to even pole vault in Paris. So you won that meet in I Liverpool. In, yeah. And you literally, and like, could you not find one to even try to use? Or you just were against using anything but yours? Or Nobody would let me use their poles. No shit. Yeah. That's fucked up, man. Yeah. God. I mean, it's no, yeah. yeah. But no, everyone, I mean, everyone's competing. Yeah, but damn. Yeah, they're expensive, too, you know. And I guess people are afraid if this guy breaks my pole, you know, what now and uh what are they gonna do what year was this this was uh 1997 yeah but uh but anyway it funny story that my poles i never saw them in paris we got on the airplane you know and, and came back home my poles showed up and then like two and a half months after i got home and they were beat. It looked like they had been run over by an army tank. And, you know, uh, I had them in these PVC pipe sleeves. And the, the pipe itself was just shattered. And uh, there's no telling what all they went through. But I was just amazed that they even, you know, made it back to my house. Uh, but anyway, moving on past that. Uh, so I did good in sports in, in you know, high school. And uh, I go to you know, Northwestern on a, like a track scholarship. Gotcha. And I'm out there one day, you know, practicing and I like lift the pole up and I look and this airplane just real low flies right over my head. And I'm just fascinated with airplanes, you know, from a child because my dad was a pilot. We've done air shows and all of that. And uh, of course I'm, you know, no longer paying attention to pole vaulting. I'm looking at the airplane flying over and I noticed it said, NSU on the tail and I said and there was a guy out there on the track he was like a junior he'd been you know out there for years and I said hey man what what's up with that plane it said NSU on the tail he said yeah that's our aviation department like I said what you can I can learn how to fly here he's like yeah you can major in aviation 
So the next day I went, because I was a, like a criminal justice major, you know, I went in, I don't know what I wanted to do. Yeah. It'd be fun, whatever. But one time I learned that they had aviation, I'm like, this is the ticket for me, right? And uh, I had no clue that they had that. They, did they still have that? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just learned not long ago that uh, there wasn't enough enrollment recently to, because it's expensive, right? Um, to, to have the aircraft operations going. And without the proper number of enrollment, uh, they just shut it down. Okay. And, um, but I was sad to hear that. But um, anyway, that next day, I went and changed my major to aviation. And, you know, started flying right away and uh, just really enjoyed the heck out of it. It was fun. Of course, we were in those little bitty, small two-seater airplanes. And um, so during my time pole vaulting, I had some injuries happen. All right. And this is kind of the beginning, I guess, of, of my down, what started my downfall. Um, I had surgeries, you know, ACL reconstructions on both knees. And then I had a lateral ligament replaced on my right ankle. And I've got screws and stuff in my, my joints. And, uh, but anyway, I was in a lot of pain getting out of those surgeries and they gave me, you know, painkillers. What, what, what kind specifically? What's that? What kind? Painkillers? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, that they put me on like Laura tabs and, um, um, maybe some Percocets or gotcha. something like that, you know? <clears throat> anyway, that they gave them to you while, you know, how it is after surgery. And, uh, and after basically I, I ran out of those, my body was still just hurting all the time. And I didn't realize, you know, in that moment, what was happening to me. And I just thought, well, maybe I, you know, get another you know, pain pill. It, it'll take this hurt away because I don't feel normal. I don't know what this is. Little did I know that that was addiction that was already setting into me, you know, and I just didn't know how to coin it or identify right. being as young and, and uneducated about that sort of thing. But um, so I got addicted basically to, uh, you know, uh, painkillers, pharmaceuticals uh, at that age. And of course, being raised in a military background, you know, my parents were so anti drug growing up. My mom ne- never smoked a cigarette in her life or any of that, you know. my just a really clean background for both both parents. So the last thing I felt like I could do was was reach out to them for help. Right. Yeah. Felt like they they would just look down on me and and uh, disown me. So I chose to internalize everything and try to march on. And uh, you know it was just a self self destructive path. And I guess my second year of college, you know, as I uh, got worse. Um, I ended up, you know, getting uh, married at that that point in time. Um, it was a really confused, you know, time of my life, and I figured, you know, uh, this is, I guess, the right thing for me. I, I don't know if it is or not, but we're just going to go with it and try it more or less. And uh, uh, whenever, you know, we, uh, me and her had gotten married, she had bought me an airplane at the time. And because I needed to build flight hours and, you know, to, to graduate with this degree in aviation science, there's a you know, predetermined amount of hours, but they got a whole syllabus right, and stuff right. that you have to meet, right? <clears throat> and um, so, you know, throughout my time in, in college, 
sure everybody, you know, college kids need work, they need jobs. And I was picking up, you know, small jobs here and there as they would come up. But remember, this is 12,000 kids in a small, small college. Oh, yeah. Every one of them are looking for work. Yeah. So jobs are pretty scarce in an area like that. And, uh, and the, the lady that at the time, you know, that I was married to was, was from South Texas. And she knew a lot of people, you know, down there. And, and I would have to build flight time. So, so we would fly down to, to the area, you know, where she was from just to, you know, stack some hours up. And uh, some of my buddies in the fraternity one day, you know, I told them where we were flying down to. They were like, what, you know, uh, can you bring us back some, some juice? And I'm like, what do you mean juice? And uh, I was like, uh, I'll see, you know, I can, I can check on her ass. I was like, I don't really know anybody there, but you know, she may, well, it just so happened she did. A whole family friend was like a pharmacist in one of those little uh, border towns. Right, uh, right over there, the border, yeah. Just right over the border. And uh, so it wound up just turning you know, this is a very stupid and embarrassing, more or less, you know, thing that that I did. And I look back on it now, thinking, you know, what was I, what was I doing? You know, one of them times. But, but anyway, uh, we were more or less asked by a couple of buddies to, you know, bring them a, a package back of some uh, some anabolic steroids, is is what the juice was right. asking for. So, you know, we asked this guy down there, did you get there, just send him the name of it. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, just you know, tell him what you need. And I was like, well, that was easy. And, uh, and I didn't even know what this stuff like sold for or whatever. And so I ended up, you know, the, the first time it was just more or less, hey, I'm down here, I'll, I'll bring you some stuff back home, you know, and, uh, and we would never drive across right. the border or we would never fly across the border. No, we, we, we would always stay within the, the U.S. But, you know, there's, there's a, you know, these airports that are real close to the border and then you can get like a ride or a courtesy car, you know, and park it on the little parking spot just before the border and yeah. walk across. And uh, so we would just walk across and, and get the, the stuff that you know people had ordered and take it back to them, and then whenever we saw how much money they were paying for, we're like, "Well, that's strange. Um, that's helpful because you know, I'm not <laughs> not really in a job right now. Yeah, I need flight time, and so you know, you make a another run, you know, and do you know? So she was skeptical at first about doing it again, but. But at a time you're desperate for money and not thinking straight at the same time, seems like a great idea, right? Well, just like any small town, man, you know, people, all the fraternities started like, yeah. up, <laughs> you know, like Terminators walking around everywhere and uh, the sports teams as well. And then I guess, you know, my name got out and, and I was, it got to a point one night where I was in uh, one of the clubs and some guy I'd never even seen before, never met. He came up to me and he's like, hey man, I, uh, I was hoping I could get some juice from you. And I was just like, yeah, it was an eye opener for me because you know, like I said, I'd never seen this guy before and, and it worried me. I said, well, clearly these people know that, uh, you know, that, that 
I brought some steroids, you know, back for, for somebody's, but I said, uh, this is internally, I'm thinking this is my time. I need to, you know, probably slow, slow my roll and, and stop doing what I'm doing because it's, it's not going to, uh, you know, be able to carry on for too much longer. And, uh, about two days after that, I get a call from the airport manager and he was a friend of mine, you know, and, um, and we get like the airplane stayed in the, the hangar there, uh, the city hangar and it's rented a spot for them. But he calls me up, he's like, man, he's like, you doing anything you're not supposed to be doing? I was like, no, I mean, what are you talking about? Like, I, I don't understand what you, you mean. He said, well, there were two uh, uh, police officers that came out here and wanted to search your airplane and uh, I said, okay, fine, did you, did you let them? He said, well, no, they walked up, you know, put a flashlight in the windows and, and looked around, but they didn't open the doors or anything. So I was just curious, you know, if you was doing something that, that you shouldn't be doing. As back of my mind, I was just, you know, like, oh my gosh, what is, no shit. what has happened? Right? Well, the, yeah, because I mean, that's something that, that's the last thing you want to hear. Well, also, that's probably something unheard of, too, for some little spot like that. You know what I mean? Well, here was another thing. Um, I was 21 years old, and I had my own airplane. So that right. That's already a red, f- red flag already. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. The, the truth, you know, behind that is uh, it was the, the guy that, okay, the woman I married was married before me. Got you. And she was married to a wealthy man. Got you. So more or less, the money came from her previous marriage. Got you. And and she's the one that, you know, that bought the airplane or whatever. That's how I acquired it. So I don't know if these cops were thinking, oh, this guy, you know, must be moving some hard dope through here just, uh, you know, to be able to afford this airplane. And uh, so I kind of wanted to, you know, clear the air on that and, and why I had this airplane, if there was any uh, speculation on their part. Uh, so whenever the manager told me they were out there looking at my airplane, I called them up. I yeah. called the, the Natchitoches, you know, sheriff's office. And, and I was like, hey, you know, if you guys need to look at my airplane, they can come to me and ask me. I can open it up for them. They don't have to, you know, go down to the... Uh, uh, airport manager and you know I guess go behind my back and said I'm, I'm open to answering questions you may have well that day um, I had already basically gotten some you know money for, for a load that, for my next load but I didn't really plan on going until Saturday and, and the guys that had given me some money they knew I was right. going on Saturday so I figured Whoever, whoever gave me money, like if any one of them is, you know, uh, going to snitch and, you know, tell whoever that I'm leaving on Saturday and Saturday's the day, <clears throat> I knew that I'd be pretty much a roasted duck. Gotcha. Know? So, so I told them Saturday I was going to, you know, head out and be back that night. And I got home um, and I started thinking about it and I said, you know what? I'm gonna go right now. I'm not gonna wait. 
nobody thinks I'm leaving. It's a weekday, you know. So I went on this one uh, uh, by myself, and I had kind of a, a weird gut feeling, but uh, I took a big duffel bag with me and we filled it full of like bubble wrap before you know I left. So I ended up going over there and you know getting the stuff and like wrapping it up in these these uh, bubbles, uh, bubble packing, you know and. My idea was, man, I, I just had a bad feeling about landing with that stuff. Yeah. You know, I did not want, I didn't want any airplanes. So, so man, I ended up uh, just kicking that stuff basically uh, out of the, the door whenever we, I'll say we, when, whenever I got on the uh, downwind leg of runway you know two five in Natchitoches and it just so happened that downwind leg uh, put me over uh, a soybean field that was behind the house I rented at the time okay all right so you knew you were dropping it at I knew yeah I knew that this was you know going to be easy to get to Mm -hmm. because it's out in this field behind my house by the way I came in um, and no lights no radio this is a very old airplane Okay, it was nothing new, no fancy electronics in it. It's like a Cessna or? Yeah, it was okay. a 1958 <clears throat> Cessna. Damn, okay. Very old. So, you know, I came in and, and landed. I'm looking around, there's no cars out there, and I'm like, you know, good. Still had that weird gut feeling, right? And, uh, man, about the time I was grabbing that rope to tie the wing strut down, uh, I hear somebody s- step out and say my name pretty loud and, and uh, I froze and I thought there's no way I didn't see any cars here who's yelling me on my name and as I turn around I see it's it's it was just you know two guys investigating me okay and uh, they, they basically wanted to know where I'd been you know and, and I told them I've been over in Texas building some time flight time and then they they acted like they didn't, you know, believe a word I was saying. Of course, they wanted to you know, search the airplane and open the doors and turn them loose, and they searched every panel. They were really pissed. I mean, they, you know, you could tell that they just wanted, you know, they they knew that they had me. Yeah, they uh, they thought that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and whenever they, you know, they didn't, they uh, they were very angry. And then he said, "Well, why'd you come in? You know, with." with no radios, no lights. And I said, well, man, this is, this is an older airplane. And, and I blew a fuse that when I was leaving out of, you know, uh, when I was departing. So um, I had yeah, extra fuses and stuff in the plane. And, you know, I had figured that out and route and replaced it. And, and so my lights and stuff worked. But when you go into an uncontrolled airfield, you're not required to make radio calls. Right. Okay. Drop dusters come in and out all the time. They don't make radio calls. Drop dusters don't operate the radios. And uh, anyway, I, I told them, I was like, well, you don't have to have, you know, uh, radio calls coming in out here. This is uncontrolled airspace. And, of course, that upset them even more. <laughs> and, Where are these uh, people from? Like, what department? Like, they were... Uh, sheriff's office. So... Narcotics. But they knew it. So they don't really... They didn't really have knowledge of what the parameters were and what the laws were for you? I mean, nobody 
really knows the the um, aviation rules and regulations unless you're you know really in that. Field. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, a lot of the the reg, you know regular law enforcement, police, and sheriff's office. Um, they, for example, we were flying paragliders out one day in an uncontrolled area, and one guy showed up and said, you can't fly here, this is controlled airspace. And we were like, or he said, it's restricted airspace. And we were like, no, it's not. We can show you on the chart here, everything's depicted, you know. So it just kind of shows you that uh, if, unless you're really in the field, you don't know, you know a lot about that, that sort of thing. But moving on, I knew that I was, I was done. Yeah. You know, that was, that was the last stupid thing that I had, you know, ever done in, uh, in, in that airplane. So I was like, you know what? I don't need this stress in my life. I'll never do this again. This is, you know, perhaps the, the stupidest thing that, that I've done. And um, so I was an adrenaline junkie. Okay, and I think that was part of my pole vaulting thing. And you know, I've always liked fast uh, motorcycles and boats and whatnot. But anyway, I continued on. I graduated college, and you know, wait, what happened with the drugs? Well, okay, <laughs> hold on. So this package that I keep excuse me, drugs, the roids, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. yeah, juice. So. Uh, whenever I opened the door and like pushed it out, of course I hit the mark button on the little GPS unit yeah. just to try to you know go back to the the spot. And when I got home, man, I would like that night I was so just scared. I was yeah. shaking, you know, because um, it was it, I knew that I would have been barbecued. If yeah, that was a huge charge. Have, yeah, would have would have caused me, <clears throat> but. Um, but you know, looking back, it's like you know, over 20 years ago. You know, it's just I look back on it still, shake my head, going, "What was I thinking?" But again, I'm telling this story today to try to help uh, people understand that doing these sorts of things, whether you think you're doing it for good in that moment, like me, I thought, "Man, this is helping me, you know, eat, help me survive." I'm a starting college student yeah. with no job and I guess that was my excuse yeah. at the time to do it but it was stupid um, so you know uh, I my, my addiction with uh, the, the prescription medications it basically just spiraled and got worse uh, as I finished college and moved um, I moved over to Katy Texas yeah and basically went through uh, a divorce uh, over there and you know, basically went our own ways um, gladly and once all that was over with I was basically stuck over in Texas in a territory I knew nobody you know and what did I do well I started going to this one place hanging out and it was like a restaurant bar outside they had bands and stuff always you know near the gallery area so I just go out you know hang out um, there my, my spare time when I, I wasn't working because uh, when I moved over there I needed a job right away so I, I got a job over like at uh, Lowe's and um, I was a department manager there uh, a long time ago but 
But anyway, when I wasn't working, I would be hanging out at this restaurant, basically meeting the wrong crowd, you know. And I went down, this is like the really start of my, my dark uh, path that, that I went down. And my drug use uh, basically, you know, morphed uh, into, you know, prescription medications, uh, into hard drugs. And whenever uh, I, you know, found the hard drugs, it completely changed the fabric of my being and who I was and who I was, you know, raised to be. And, um, and you don't think rationally anymore, especially whenever you become uh, addicted to a substance. And for those that have never really gone through it, uh, you will never be able to, to understand it fully. I mean, people can try to explain it, you know, all day till they're blue in the face, but until you've lived it, it's a, it's a total different uh, story. And essentially, because of my addiction problem, I ended up just, you know, not going to work. Uh, I quit working at, at uh, Lowe's to go work at this other place called, uh, I don't even remember the, the name of it, but some headhunter actually came in Lowe's. He's like, dude, you great customer service. I, I want you to come to work to this other place. I got you. He got me the job. <clears throat> what, what type of drugs were, was it, were you using? Uh, well, I started out using, you know, uh, cocaine. Okay. And, and then it moved from there to the uh, to the crystal. And Ooh, okay, got you. That went. That was absolutely. And it consumed you. It consumed me. What do you mean? Um, just to stop and elaborate real quick, so I don't lose it. So, what do you mean, like, for people to understand what it does and, and change the fabric of your being? Do you think it changed you because you're just constantly focused on when's the next time you're going to be able to get it? Like, what is what is the change there? Do you think? Like, if you could look back now and identify yeah, it. So you know, I, I try to look back and identify. Uh, what you know it did a, a number of things that, that I see but the main thing is is whenever it gets you to a point where you require this to function you require this substance you will do anything to get that substance did you replace pain medication with that like did you Pretty much. okay so like you were relying upon pain medication but it was it was manageable I'm assuming and then and then basically whenever I, I made the, the hop, it was just this weird, I don't know, man. Gotcha. It's, it was a time, still when I look back on it, that's very, uh, a lot of this is a very blurred time in my life. Yeah. You know, and to be honest, I've compartmentalized a lot of it, so, you know, I guess that's how the, your, your mind naturally deals with uh, traumatic things in your life or times in your life to where it kind of puts it in a back box and stores it away to where, you know, you can, you know, move on without that just eating you alive and, yeah. um, you know, and beating yourself up over. But, um, so, so in order for me to feed, you know, my addiction, I turned to, um, and this is another stupid thing. Y'all don't hear a lot of stupid things. Hey man, looks, the good thing about it is you can talk about it now. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I can talk about it now because basically, you know, yes, I've, I've paid for my crimes. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, and I never did hurt anybody physically. You know, throughout this whole time, it was it was a money thing because I was just trying to supply my habit. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the first thing we started doing, man, to, 
Um, when I say we, me and uh, another guy that he initially showed me this trick on how to rig up a dollar bill, like a 10 or $20 bill, and he put it in a machine, you know, at the car wash, and then it, it drops the quarters out for you, but, but we still get our bill back. Okay. So we would just do this. What year was this? Over and over. This was... I heard 2000s? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, like... Yeah, somewhere around there. But, but anyway, the... Uh, we would go around and get, you know... We would stop after getting enough quarters to supply our habit for the day. And then we'd just go roll it straight into that Coinstar machine, turn into cash, and then supply our habit. And then do it all over again. It was just a, a vicious cycle that I knew was going to end in a bad way. Well, after so many people, I guess the cat got out of the bag um, about you know getting coins out of these machines that a lot of people uh, around Houston started doing it. So it became something that was unattainable uh, because I guess there, it, all those locations were being watched yeah. so hard. Um, so we quit doing that. There was a couple of close calls. Uh, you know, we saw people staking locations out, and we would, you know, roll up there and look at them. And so we just said, "This is not. This is not going to work." So time goes on, and uh, and again, this is. I was at somebody's house hanging out, and this this guy there I'd never met before and seen. He was a mutual friend of the dude that, that I was at his house, and he. He asked me to give him a ride somewhere. I'd never met the guy before, and, and but I was like, "All right, if you're his friend, sure, you know, I'll take you." So he uh, he gets in my truck, and we you know head out. I said, "I need to pull over right quick and, and get some gals and sit on E." Right. Well, whenever I get out, he hands me a Holiday Inn room key, and I was kind of confused. I'm like, why are you handing me a room key? So we're, you get, you get points for the gas. You know what I mean? Because they got the little points yeah. on the pump. I, yeah. I was just confused. And he said, put it in the pump. So I put this room key in the pump. The pump came on. I was like, what just happened here? He said, fill your truck up. So I just filled my truck up on a Holiday Inn room key. And I was just, just, very confused. Holy shit, okay, yeah. How does this happen? Okay, yeah. So he kind of laughs a little bit, and he doesn't tell me anything um, at that moment. But I gave him a ride, and then I found out I was taking him to to his house, and he invited me, you know, in, I I would call it his lab, more or less, because I go in, and this guy, it looked like Mr. Wizard's living room with, you know, screens all over the place, just all these electric gadgets and boxes and, um, like, these weird devices set out beside his computer. And I was just looking at him, man, you got a lot going on here, you know? I didn't know what it was. And uh, he said, he picks up this little, uh, like a cube, you know, it was about uh, two inches tall by an, an inch wide, very small, and it had a little slot in it, you know, where you could just run a credit card through the Right. Side. And he hands this thing to me, and he says, he goes, you know anybody that uh, can load this thing up with some 
some cards, uh, credit card information. I said, what do you mean? He goes, all you do is take a credit card and you can swipe it through here. And this thing will retain the information off that card. Ah. And I said, okay. He said, oh yeah, it'll hold up to 3,000 cards on it or some ridiculous number. And he said, then I'll take this, you know, he said, if you can get some credit card information on it, he said, you know, bring it back. And he said, I'll plug it up right here. And then all basically every bit of the information that was skimmed off of these cards, it now comes up on his computer. And I literally watched him go, he asked me for my, uh, my ID or, or not my uh, driver's license, but my credit card with my name on it. Right. And I was like, man, I don't know, I don't know what you're yeah. doing here. You know, I was very unsure. He said, watch this. So he put this uh, information thing in the, in the load block and, and there's another device with a, another slot in it, a big one. And that was his, uh, called it a magnetic stripe reader writer. <clears throat> so he would load, you know, Joe Blow's information and then hit write and he would take anything. With a strip. With a strip yeah. And swipe it through here and now it programs it to this card. And then, so then I understood what was going on for the first time that he was, you know, able to glean information from, you know, one, one place and then basically reprogram it on anything. Didn't need to be a credit card or, or anything like that. But, you know, me at the time, of course, me being in that, that mindset, that the, just the, the drug fog, I, I would call it, you know, the haze, clearly not thinking in my right mind. Um, I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. I mean, it does sound very interesting. I mean, imagine, too, in, being in your early 20s and you're trying, you know what I mean? Like, I get it. Right. And, and here was the other side of the thing. I did think about, um, you know, because I've had my, you know, account hacked before right. where I've had to, you know, shut down cards and stuff. But I remembered, I was like, you know, the bank always reimburses, right? It's FDIC. Yeah. It's, it's everything was, was federally backed. So I knew at the time, um, you know, this was a pain in the neck for the, the people that are, you know, having their, their money taken, but they're going to get their money back mm -hmm. in seven days. I mean, this is how the, the operation works. <clears throat> so I had a buddy that he was a, uh, a waiter at, a, at a, one of the largest restaurants in, in Houston. And, um, oh shit. So he was waiting Taylor. He would have these big corporate parties, you know, that would come in and, and he would get these, you know, these big open ended credit cards, more or less corporate credit cards. And he would glean information off those. And <clears throat> so I was just more or less like the middleman. Right. You know, he'd hand that thing off to me when he'd get off work and then I would, uh, give it to, what did you, you just get some type of little cut on this thing or well, you would give me or some cards open-ended cards and you just do whatever with those yeah yeah and um so boys and girls ladies and gentlemen let me tell you how karma works let me tell you how you can't can't get away even if you think you're getting away with something because nobody's looking uh-uh no now you can't beat the law of the spirit world yeah and it's called karma and it will come back and bite you every single time. 
And I mean, this basically is the, the largest uh, lesson in life that, that I've learned is karma is very, very real, okay? And uh, so out of bad luck, or I should just call it karma, that we uh, ended up, one of the peoples, because we got a bunch of different, you know, in the process of doing this little scheme, one of the ladies that we, you know, drained her, her bank account overnight, she was a uh, off-duty Secret Service agent. Oh, shit. She was there, I guess, eating at that restaurant with um, her family. And any type of, uh, you know, white-collar uh, crime or, or monetary crime, whether you're counterfeiting or any of that stuff, that all gets basically you know, sent to the secret server. They deal with all that stuff. And um, so within two or three days, I want to say, again, that, that time is so long ago, and, and I have such blurred uh, timeline in those, you know, yeah. that window of uh, days, that I knew things were bad because I heard that the guy at Waiting the Tables like I think it was his girlfriend called and she said hey they they just got Joe at work and I was like what and she said yeah he went up to wait like I think it was a party of eight sitting there and he walks up he's like yeah welcome uh, good evening can I get y'all started with something to drink you know the usual spill a waiter says when he shows up and every one of these people around the entire table, they said, nope. And they pull out a badge and they said, you can put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest, you know. And so he turned around and the manager of the restaurant, he was in on it. They, they, right. So they immediately grabbed this guy in the restaurant, standing there in front of everybody, go through his pockets, catch him red-handed with damn. a skimmer. Well, you know, the... The next, I guess, following day, they tracked down the guy that was actually riding them, and he went down. So I knew that they were on my trail. Yeah. I just knew it was a matter of time. Yeah. And again, you know, I was, I didn't have a cash flow source, and money was running low. I didn't want to use any of these cards anymore because I, I just knew I had the bad gut feeling again that you know my life was really about to come crumbling down on top of me and um, so to, to back up a little bit um, I was out on bond already because when we were running around one night doing the coin machine thing I was telling you about we got pulled over and uh, there was a pipe in the car that they found oh yeah and they arrested me got and, you, you know, and I, I was basically out on bond when we were out doing this heinous BS that that ultimately um, got us all brought down but but after those two guys got caught the following morning um, I got SWAT teamed by the Secret Service more or less yeah and and it was strange because they never said a word like you know you see stuff on TV all the time there's all kinds of audible announcements, you know, yelling, screaming, you know, lots of racket going on, the element of surprise. No, it was like six o'clock in the morning, 
and the area I lived in was um, like a mid-rise, um, almost like a hotel. Okay. Um, but it was townhomes, and it had an indoor atrium with glass elevators. Well, clearly, like people that were leaving, going to work that morning, early, they saw this, you know, SWAT team commotion going up. So whenever I got brought out, like they didn't say a word. They, before I could really open my eyes and focus, I already had these dots floating all over me and I knew I shouldn't move. Uh, <laughs> this ain't no dance floor. Yeah. And, uh, these, these dots here are not for the good of uh, man. But Dang. anyway, I was more or less, I'm extremely particular when it comes to my vehicles, and I only recommend those who are the same way. That's why I always recommend SBC Autos. They take pride in their inventory, from badass four-wheel drives, clean classic cars, and even your everyday grocery getters. They have it all. No hassle, no BS, SBCAutos.com. Just so freaked out, I didn't you know, say anything. Uh, I just remember being snatched up out of the bed, marched out of that door, and they put me in this glass elevator. I'll never forget this. This is literally, you know, the most embarrassing time and most shameful. This is, I guess, when I felt the, the most shame when it ultimately hit me. As I'm coming down this glass elevator in my boxer shorts, you know, with these guys standing on each side of me, and I can see people on every one of these floors of this atrium that are just you know, seeing what's going on, yeah. you know, seeing who this criminal is that's getting taken down. But um, they put me in a van outside, and this guy was sitting in this van on a little stool. And he said, uh, he knew me already. He said, uh, Mr. Romano, uh, we already know what you've done. He said, it's uh, up to you to be honest with us. And I was sitting there thinking, well, does he know? Or Right, trying, trying to, to get you some info. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does he know? <clears throat> then he opens in a manila folder up, and it looked like he was, or somebody was standing on a 30-foot ladder taking pictures above my head of me pushing like a LG TV in the back of my truck in Office Depot parking lot. And um, I was like, well, there's no denying that. You yeah, know, yeah. There as, you know, yeah, I did that, you know. And, uh, and he tells me they were watching me from a satellite. And that's when I knew that we had really messed with the wrong people. Yeah, no shit. And this is like early 2000s. Yes. Man. 20 years ago. So, or, yeah. Yeah. So Holy I shit. I was just floored that, that we had smacked a hornet's nest this big. And, um, but little did I know at that point in time, that was the, the saving grace of my life. And this guy tells me, he says, I see you. You got a clean record. You've never been in trouble before. And I said, yes, sir. You're, that's right. He said, well, man, what's, what's going on? I see you're, you know, out of bond right now. And, and now this is, uh, you know, what brings this on? And I said, man, drugs are a hell of a thing, sir. You know, that's all I could tell him. And, yeah. And because I knew that that wasn't me. That wasn't the way I was raised. And I was ashamed I was even in that situation. And, um, he says, well, you got no bond. <laughs> I said, what do you mean I have no bond? He's like, you, you have no bond. He said, you should be out within a year. And I go, what? 
I can't do two weeks in here. What are you talking about a year? So it it wound up being 15 months. Okay. okay. And where it? I was transferred around to five different facilities around Texas. Damn. And uh, so <clears throat> during my time in, you know, in incarceration, and by the way, when I was younger growing up, my dad told me, he said, Chris, if you ever get arrested, don't call me. Yeah, so you knew. I'm not coming to see you. Yeah. So that at this point, did you keep contact with them before this happened? Anyways, like, were you in a position where? Yeah, I was kind of. I would keep in contact with them, but it, my parents, you know, but it was kind of scarce. It, it wasn't. Right, um, right. They knew I was distant, and they knew I was kind of uh, slipping onto the the dark side. But at the same time, they had no way to control me. Got you. And you know, a lot of parents these days they experience going through problems with their own kids, and they're wondering. How can I control this kid? Right. And the simple answer is, is you can't. That kid is is literally going to go out and do whatever that kid's going to do, and um, and that's the unfortunate, you know, reality. Because uh, my brother, you know, he went through his bad phase early in life, but he turned out great, um, you know, later in life. And, um, and it was weird. I started life out good, and then went through this bad phase. But yet that bad phase, even though it was a small, short stint, you know, early in my life, it it left a mark on my right, life. Right, right. And then, so that brings me to, to really why I'm telling my story. Well, one question on detox. Mm -hmm. You had a detox there, right? You had to go through all that too. Yeah, and once well, I sobered up and- Well, how, how was that process of how horrible was that? Because how bad off were you? Like, do you think, just to, just to vocalize that, you know what I mean? It's, um, it's it's hard to put into terms like the feeling you get from it, but lots of sleepless nights, cold sweats, physical pains, diarrhea, you know, constant headache, upset stomach. It's just everything within your body is off. It's out of whack. And and um, once you go through, you know, a healing process, and that's what it took. Because I'm here to tell you right now, when when someone is gets as bad as I was during that time. You got two options: is death or prison. Yeah. Okay. And thank goodness, you know, prison got me first. Yeah. Because um, even though it, it it put a mark, you know, permanent mark on my record, and I felt at that time my life's over. I just wasted every bit of this time in school learning how to fly airplanes for nothing. I can't go work. No airline will ever hire me. What? You know, my life's over. So I got a long time to sit in there and think about all of the stupid things that I had done and, and you know, and now I'm in here paying for it and and it gave me a lot of time to think on what I was gonna do, how I was gonna move on. I didn't know. So this may sound cliche, man, but it's it's the truth. I turned everything over to God and I was like, man, I'm out. <laughs> I tried my way and it didn't work. How long, how long before you made that decision? Uh, I was in, uh, in the system, you know, I was incarcerated during the time that I truly sobered up. Okay. And, and when I sobered up, uh, that's, I guess, 
the realization that I came to of how bad I, I, I screwed everything up and I made a deal with the man upstairs, you know, at that time. And I said, look, I know I was not raised this way. I'm ashamed, you know, <clears throat> of my actions and things that I've done. <clears throat> Even though I didn't physically hurt anybody, I caused people a lot of, you know, um, mental anguish. And, you know, I felt terrible that I even did that. But um, I guess moving through this, this whole thing, it, it taught me one thing is when you put every bit of your faith in God and, and say, you know, I'm going to leave this up to you. If you have a plan for me, I, I, I don't know why I went to school to fly airplanes if I can't do it now. You know, it's over with. So I could just kind of, maybe you got a different plan for me. Well, since those days, every day when I wake up in the morning, I'm thankful for, you know, the life I have now. Um, you know, thank goodness at that time, you know, I didn't have a family. Like, I didn't have any kids. Right, I was right. Young. <clears throat> but God now, like, since... Like the day I got out, my mom's like, you need to go start your life over in a new place. You're not going to be around Texas. You don't need to be around Louisiana. So they came and scooped you up. It was like, they're going to help you, help you out a little bit. My mom put me on an airplane the next day, sent me one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. Okay. Why Seattle? My brother lived up there. Okay. Okay. So she's like, go start a new life. Your brother's there. And basically I went up there and bought a bicycle and that's you know, how I was getting around up there. But... Every day I woke up still and, and thanked the good Lord for my freedom and for giving me, you know, that, that chance, the second chance to, to do right with my life and not only do right, but try to you know, go overboard and, and, and give back. And, you know, and I guess that's, again, one of the reasons I'm, I'm talking today is that I want to give back to uh, you know, folks that feel like they may not have a chance entering the job force. If you you know been in, incarcerated, you got felonies on your record, whatever. Um, the, I, I I know I've been there. I felt the same way. And God gave me the blueprint, more or less, um, laid it out in front of me. Whenever I got out, because I didn't know what I was going to do. I did. A, I was a computer technician, the technical support rep. And I basically would fix people's trading software if they're, uh, I worked for a company who taught how to trade stocks and options in the market. It allowed me to work from home. And I just got tired of, you know, sitting in front of a screen for hours and hours every day. So I said, I can't do this any longer. Plus, I didn't know anybody up there, you know, yeah. uh, being in a foreign territory. So I got on like um, Match.com, you know, and anyway, I ended up. Uh, meeting my, my wife now, uh, Chloe, on, on Match. But anyway, it was crazy because I had already planned on moving back here. I was up there three and a half years, and I'm like, uh, too much rain. It rained over 300 days out of the year. And my dad, you know, since, since I was on the up and up, since, you know, I had been out three years, my dad's like, hey, move back down here, and I'll get you a job as a service tech in the oil field. Yeah. I said, cool. So, and I wanted to be, something was pulling me back. I didn't know, but I needed to come back. Um, I met Chloe, I said, you know, 
I like you and everything, but I'm leaving in two months. I'm going back south. Well, she said, I'll fire sell everything I have and go with you. She said, my family's down in Austin. And um, anyway, uh, I ended up proposing to her and uh, she, she moved down uh, here with me. And when we got down here, my dad said, Chris, my company uh, that I worked for just made a rule, no nepotism. So because you're family, you can't work Damn. So that's really kind of the reason that I come back. So I'm like, golly. So what am I gonna do? I still had my job working from home. Right. You know, and I, so I didn't give that up. And I, you know, I was still doing my thing there. So it kept some money coming in. But again, I was tired of sitting inside. So my uncle, my aunt and uncle, they owned a pest control company, um, and I knew that you know my my uncle Bill knew a lot of uh, people, you know, in the area. And I said, hey, can I give you my resume and maybe hang it out to you, some of your friends if you know anybody in the oil field? And he said, sure. So he held on to it for a week and then called me up after a week. He said, Chris, would you be interested, uh, you know, working here if, uh, if I had a position come available? And I was like, well, never really thought about doing bugs. And, yeah. You know, animals, I mean, me and my brother used to play with, you know, all kinds of critters when we were small. So I thought it would be a change of pace from staring at a screen all day, something different. You know, you get to move around and, and um, you know, just a little bit something different on the daily. I wanted to try that out. So I started being a, you know, service, I guess a technician that goes around and just spray for bugs. And after a month, or two months or so of doing that. Then they transitioned me into doing animals and uh, trapping animals and all of that. And I noticed, I guess after you know, a year, you know, six months I guess of working there, there was really no, we got a lot of snake calls come in but there was no real answers for snakes. Um, so, you know, I was with this you know, pest control company for I guess mm, eight, years or so okay and I was it was fresh in my mind and nothing was working for snakes because I was putting out the mothballs and sulfur and everything the industry was teaching us to use and I had done it on three or four houses and minutes I mean minutes after I had left this these houses my phone's ringing and it's the customers calling me saying Chris we already got a snake on our porch that stuff must not work I'm like, good Lord, I just put it out. And um, so after I had some unhappy customers, I, I told the technicians to, if y'all have any snakes this week, bring them back to the office. We're going to do a test with them. So I wanted to put some of this stuff on the ground just to see if. And this, and this any, any type of snake? It doesn't matter. I had, uh, we had three different snakes that we tried. These okay. The ones that ended up coming up. We had um, a timber rattlesnake, uh, a black rat snake. And we had a, a speckled king snake. Okay. Well, we put, and I just did kind of like a, a half moon or semicircle, you know. So the snakes could have gone the opposite direction. There was no repellence over here. Just basically did a C, a big C on the ground, put the snake down. First uh, rattlesnake took off, it plows through, through that, you know, and I put it thick, a lot thicker than what you would shake out around your yard too, right? It was kind of piled up. What plows through it like it's not there. And we're all looking at that. 
we're like, yeah, maybe it's a fluke. We put that rat snake on the ground. The same thing, man. It went on across. And then when we put that king snake down, man, it literally, it started across the pile, turned around like it was coming back, and it ended up just coiling up right on that pile of repellent. It coiled up and went to sleep on that repellent. What the hell? So when we saw that, we felt terrible because we we aren't into wasting the customer's money right, or right. our time, and we had been doing this because the industry is telling us to do it, right? Well, obviously, we stopped doing it um, as a service that day, <clears throat> and it was fresh on my mind. This nothing works for snakes, and by the way, the snake is the number one feared like pest in the pest control world, and there's not been an answer really, right? So. <clears throat> I uh, was out mowing my yard one day, this is fresh on my mind and nothing works for snakes, and I passed the end of my shop and I had thrown a big wad of netting behind my shop one day um, because it was too much to just waste. I figured I could use it when bird jobs come in or whatever, so I saved it. And I passed by this ball of netting and I looked down and there's a six foot long chicken snake hanging out of this net and it's just thrashing, man. I mean, that thing is trying to get out, but I'm watching it and it can't. And I'm amazed. I'm like, I'll be dang it. They caught a snake. So I go on, you know, keep mowing. The light bulb didn't go off yet. So uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a call to do a bird job at a local bank in town. So I go out there to utilize some of the netting that, that I already had back there. And whenever I grabbed that ball of netting and, you know, started walking back with it to pull out a, a, a length of section to cut, to cut out and take with me, that, that big wad of netting rolled over and there was four more snakes hung in it. Two of them had expired already and two of them were like just thrashing, just like that chicken snake that I saw, you know, a couple weeks beforehand. And these guys weren't getting out either. And now I'm like, whoa, like this stuff, it, it's amazing. Yeah. It, it works great. But how in the world can I use this? And it looks messy like this. Nobody wants to see this around, you know, a big water netting laying behind their house. Or, like, how can I, you know, use that? So I thought, you know, in pest control, we like to think on broad terms. And if someone is scared of snakes, um, they don't want a snake on any part of their property. Right. You know, so I started thinking in terms of how do people's properties uh, look? Well, they're normally bordered, especially in neighborhood areas by fences, right? So uh, historically, we have a customer that has had bad snake issues. And I said, well, this will be a good house. Just test this out on to see if it even works. So I decided to cut this, you know, net um, and basically attach it to the baseline of her fence. And she had a creek behind her house. <clears throat> and then the first week we had hung that that barrier on the fence we had eight snakes hung in it holy she shit she was freaked out man she you know she had these two little dogs and they were like her kids and uh, and immediately she's like Chris you need to get out here and look at this she was showing me all these you know snakes that were caught I was blown away too I, it, it, it worked better than I had ever expected it to you know so I said, okay, maybe I'm onto something here. I need to go to the patent office. Um, let me let me back up just a, a little bit here. Uh, so whenever I moved back down here to 
to go to work with my dad. And I had one year's time with my dad, and then out of nowhere, I was going to go pick him up for a job to go on with me one morning. And uh, he had a heart attack instantly and died. And um, whenever, you know, he passed on, he left me and my brother, like, a uh, few gold coins. He had, like, you know, a few one-ounce rounds of gold. And it was one of the things, like, you get for inheritance. It's like, man, I could never spend this on a new shotgun or, right. like, you know, whatever. It was just one of the things that you'd regret, you know, spend, ever having to cash it in and spend it on. So I, it was one of those things that I kept close to my heart, never planning on spending it. So, whenever I'm out, you know, and I, I see how well this, this system works, I'm like, I need a patent. But I'm broke, you know, at the time. I didn't have any money. And uh, so I talked to my wife about it. And, uh, and, and, of course, I was grappling with the idea. And I heard my dad speak to me. And he's like, and, and I know he would approve because it was a business decision that I had to make at that time. And he, it was like he spoke to me and said, Chris, you can turn those three ounces of gold into three pounds of gold with, the, with some plastic netting. And I was just like, okay, all right, well, I guess, you know, you hear about these things in life where people, they, they take chances to see, yeah. you know, if it works out. And, um, I learned that, okay, I went to the patent office, so we were able to, you know, get this first patent underway, and I was patent pending, more or less. So then I'm like, now what? I got this widget, you know, it's it's cool, we know it works, but you can have the best thing in the world, nobody knows about it, it does you no good. Yeah. So I had a product, but then what am I gonna do with the product? So, I ended up, again, this is kind of like God showing me the past, laying the road out in front of me, because I have no idea, you know, I'm in a field, I, I, I studied airplanes, now I'm doing something with snakes and pests, so I'm like, okay, you know, God showed me the road, and so I just kind of went down this path, and with the local network here, and the angel investors, and this is what I wanted to tell people about, um, you know, some of the most brilliant people that just made bad decisions in their life were people that I met during my time um, whenever I was incarcerated. There's a lot of brilliant, you know, uh, folks in there that, not bad people, they just made a bad decision and got them, you know, in there. Yeah. The problem is, is when you get out of, you know, prison and then you have a felony on your, your record, you, go, you come out with this mentality that nobody's going to hire me, you know. And, um, so that's where I wanted to basically tell people, you don't have to be hired by somebody. Don't forget that, you know, you're your own man. You can start your own business. You can think of something that no one else is doing. And I think this is partly why, um, once, you know, I patented the, the, the product, uh, I knew if I formed a company around snakes, nobody else is doing anything with snakes. Right. You know, I knew there was probably money to be made there, but I would never know unless I tried it out. You know, it was one of those things, and it was a gamble. But again, there was a network put in front of me and a group downtown that helps people formulate new businesses. If you have, you know, an idea or you're trying to put a small business together, there are resources in place to assist people 
that really don't know the direction to go in. And my problem was, is I didn't know what all I didn't know. Right. And yeah. there is a lot of areas that, uh, that I got into with this snake venture because now that I had the patent, how am I going to get my product made? It's expensive to ask somebody else to make it for me. And I did not want to have anything made in China. I wanted it all to be made here in the U S. So, uh, during, uh, my time in the pest field, after I patented, you know, I had those patent pending, I went to a customer's house. I was doing a job for, she mentioned a bad snake problem. I said, Hey, look at this. I just, you know, I'm patent pending on it. She said, you know who my husband is? I said, no. She said, he's the head of the uh, EAP in Shreveport and, and um, you need to compete in this uh, Louisiana startup prize with this idea you have. I was like, well, what's the Louisiana startup prize? She said, it's an entrepreneurial competition. And uh, so my wife and I, you know, she's super smart on the, uh, you know, the business and the book side of things, the, the technicals with numbers and that, and, and then I basically had interest for all of the um, boots on the ground applications, how does the product work and that sort of thing. So we were, you know, a great team and, and went in there and, and explained the product and we got, and I think we competed against 84 companies. And although we didn't win the prize money, which was like $25,000, which wouldn't have done anything for me. Right. Um, we did not get the prize money, but we were the only ones that got offered investment. Gotcha. And that was really winning the prize. Yeah. Uh, because uh, on the last, it was a three day event. On the last day of the event, um, I was approached by a man that was one of the judges during the competition. He was the CEO of a NECA credit union. He says, man, I love your product. He said, I hate snakes. He said, and I love that you're a, a, a local guy here. He said, you know, we're a local group ourselves. And he's like, if you, you know, get one of these investors in the room, they're, they're going to take probably half your company from you. And one guy offered, you know, but to, to invest, but he wanted 80%. Holy I, shit. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I can't do that. I got right. Too much, you know, wrapped up into this. And, uh, anyway, moving on through it, we, uh, uh, basically I was told by this man that you just need a bank loan and I'll give it to you. And so that's more or less how I had, uh, uh the, the ability to formulate this company to start manufacturing the, uh, the snake barriers. And then I had this manufacturer, uh, company going now, but then I have everybody asking me to come out and do installs for them. Well, I formed a different company, which is a service company. Right. And that's the one we operate out of and we go out and do installs. <clears throat> so I never dreamed in a million years that life would have taken me down all these paths. But here's the kicker to all of it now. Um, you know, after all these years and and um, all the water under the bridge and me thinking, you know, my life's over with, you know, I now have an airplane and, and I'm able to use the airplane to, to go do my job <laughs> in West Texas, right? That's awesome, yeah. So it's strange how life works out, even though I thought I was gonna, you know, grow up, maybe fly for an airline. 
And God's like, no, you know, we, you know, with the airline, you'll be flying yourself around doing your own business. And I would have laughed in your face if you would have told me that back whenever I was doing the flight training, you know. So, um, you know, I, that's pretty much how I got to to where I am today, you know. And I got two beautiful little girls. I got a you know six and eight year old that. Um, you know, once they came into this world, it completely changed my life. Uh, it's you hear people say it all the time. Oh, yeah. well, it really did because that's when you understand it ain't about you anymore. Yeah, yeah there's, yeah. there's other things here that uh, that are your responsibility, and it's all about them. But <clears throat> but you know, looking back again, this is an embarrassing story for me to tell today. But for those folks out there, maybe you have a friend, family member. Um, you know, or, or, or someone that's incarcerated right now that, uh, that feels like they have no hope. Um, I just want to keep the, the bug in their ear and remember that even though if you don't have, you know, the money to say, you know, launch your business, there are investors out there that, that are willing, as long as you play straight business, you know, and you, and, and, uh, you want to live life the right way, you will be amazed how these things just start unfolding and falling into your path. But um, I recommend people reaching out and using, if you have a novel idea, you've got, everybody's got at least one idea in their lifetime, right? One great invention I believe everybody comes up with. But it's all about what you do with it. Um, and even if you feel defeated, like you don't have the money for it, keep in mind that there are networks that, uh, you know, these angel investors that, you know, you may have to give them a, a chunk of your pie, but that's better than the chunk that you're sitting with now, right? Yeah. Which is a big goose egg. You have nothing, so it's better than, than nothing. Um, I would have gone that route if I would have had to, but, you know, thank goodness I ended up being able to do this on a bank loan, um, which I'll be paying back for, for quite a while. And the other part of the coin was I didn't know how much to ask for when I got into this business. There were yeah. Unknowns. Yeah. I mean, you're starting something that there's no other, there's nothing else like it. So, I mean, you have no idea what the production, what your manufacturing is going to be, your distribution, how you're going to market it. There's no previous yeah. metrics. Like yeah. There's nothing. Competition is mothballs and sulfur. <laughs> and, and my thing is a physical barrier that they, they run into. So it's apples and oranges you're comparing. Um, we had no metrics to really base anything off of getting into this. And also I didn't understand like what it was gonna take to make this stuff because uh, the machine to process and create the net, uh, a used one was about $185,000. And I didn't know that whenever I went for my initial ask to start this business. Um, but luckily my brother is a, a genius and a CAD engineer as well. Solid works to be, you know, exact. And he was able to um, basically look at one of these machines and how it was built visually. And then he created it all in CAD and, and the SolidWorks program and sent me the file. And I was able to take it to a local fabricator, you know, in Houghton. Right. Basically, he CNC cut everything out on his machine and we built uh, the machine that I've now uh, uh, manufactured over 10, 
thousand units on probably you know we've we've done tons and tons on this machine and by the way we were able to build this machine for just under 10 grand that's crazy man so that's we crazy saved a ton of money that way yeah and created the machine that now creates the product and uh but but yeah it's just been such a a, a wild you know ride for me and none of this happened until you know i i, I threw in the towel and said god you, you have it all now you know, I've uh, the, uh, clearly I have gone down the wrong path in life, and uh, you know, looking back now, I don't I don't beat myself up over it, and I realize that we're all stupid and young at some point in our lives, and and it's really about <clears throat> what you do with it and move on, how you move on. Yeah. And uh, I see so many people that keep going back in the system because they get out, you know, and they feel like to support their family, they've got to go and you know, sell illegal, whatever, to, to do that, and then it just sends them right back in the system. <clears throat> so it's like a, a vicious, uh, a painful cycle that people can't seem to get out of because they don't have resources to do so. And um, I just want to let people know there are resources out there, um, and, and don't be afraid to, to reach out to them because people, there's a bunch of good people that are willing to help folks, you know, grease the skids and get their business uh, heading in, in the right direction and uh, and show you how to do it legal. And, and that's what, you know, I've been all about. And since those days, I just, I got to put this on, on record. Um, you know, I, I don't even uh, get pulled over for speeding anymore. Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I'm like the most uh, law-abiding uh, citizen now because of, I don't know if it's shell shock from from what I've been through, but uh, but more or less, this is just the person now who I was raised to be, and it, I look back on that uh, that uh, chemically induced monster that once existed, and, and I say, no man, that that wasn't me, but that's a that's a prime example of what you know these drugs can do to someone that's a perfectly fine person, and it'll turn them into something that they're not. Yeah, you know, and um, that that was the biggest lesson of all of it for me. And I feel like if I was able to get through this process and come out, you know, and and be relatively shiny on the other end of things now, that uh, you know how I'm sitting in in my life now, um, I couldn't be happier. Um, and you know, I'm just I want to let folks know, don't give up hope. If you know you find yourself in that situation. Because there's a lot of people out there that are that are in dark times right now, and you know, we, we, with everything going on around the world, it's you know, it's obvious that uh, it, it people feel that way about a lot of different things. But, but as far as personal um, gain, um, you know, don't don't feel as if you've lost forever if you have a mark on your record. Yeah. Because you know, there's just ways around that. Yeah, that's a lot, man. That's a lot, but you just put all that in perspective. You know what I mean? It's so it's, and for you not to ever talk about it, it's important. Like you just basically put laid the whole map out where everyone can understand what you went through. You know what I mean? To the to the to the, the you know the extent of what they can. You know, um, what it's a lot, man. There's a lot, and I'm glad to have met you, and I'm glad to have met you on this side of it. You know what I mean? Um, because well, I feel like I feel like I mean I've had some demons in my past. Not not nothing that you know 
that insane. But at any given moment, I could have been caught and been, been right in the same position. You know what I mean? Right. So um, it's just a matter of, you know, what, what happens and what unfortunate, you know, scenarios you get put in. What what did, what did they end up, like, did they ever figure out how much, like, all that added up to? Like, because I feel like they always, like, stick you with a charge, right? And they're saying, like, hey, this is how much. Yeah, so the um, the other two guys that, uh, you know, because there was three of us. Right. If there's three or more people involved in a crime, it's considered organized crime. Got you. So they hit me, or I said, said they hit us with an organized crime charge. Okay. And <clears throat> I didn't know this, but the basically the Secret Service people that got all three of us, they had got the guy that was actually, um, um, you know, swiping and writing the cards. They had arrested him two years previously for uh, manufacturing uh, checks. And I did not know this. Got you. Like, I learned this after the fact. Got you. <clears throat> but um, those two guys got 15 years in the federal penitentiary. The two other fellows? Yeah. Shit. And, and well, good thing you were the middleman. They had a, they had a court-appointed attorney. Holy shit. And, um, and then I ended up having a hired attorney, so I was... Uh, he, he, and I had a clean record. Right, I mean, right, right. I had yeah. Not been in trouble right. In the past. This was just one of those things. It was a drug, drug-induced haze, and the judge was like, "Okay, yeah, this we we see here. This this kid's been fine up to this bracket of time. And, right. And get off the deep end, right? But um, they gave me 15 months, um, you know, stay, and um, which I was. At the time, thinking there's no way I could do this, you know, but I saw lots of bad, bad stuff in those those Texas facilities. Are, they're rough, you know. There's a lot of a lot of gang activity in there, and yeah. And if you go in there and you're not associated with a gang, you know, you normally um, have time uh, a hard time getting through. Um, but but what I found was amazing for me, and I don't know if this was you know God watching over me while I was in there, but you don't see um, one person sitting at, for example, you don't see a, a skinhead sitting at the table with the the Crips or the Bloods. Right. Okay. You don't see a Crip or a Blood sitting at the Mexican Mafia because uh, everybody had their own tables in there. And people look at you when you go in there and basically size you up and see what you're about by the markings on your body, mm -hmm. your tattoos, right? Well, <laughs> I wanted more or less people to know that I wasn't uh, down with any gangs, you know. Uh, I'm not trying to get involved in, in any of that stuff. And, uh, of course, I had a, a, a alien, uh, or not alien, but a, a UFO uh, tap that, that they saw. <laughs> and, of course, people were interested in that. Yeah. This is what I found. Knowledge breaks down all barriers. And what I learned during my time in there was these guys in there are all starving for knowledge. Most of them never had a chance in life. Most of them are so uneducated that, that any type of information that they get, you can give them. They're, they're just like, they're in awe. So it got to a point where I was being like, no lot right hand of the man that I was being invited to sit at different tables 
because they had all these questions. And I, keep in mind that, you know, I'm fresh out of college, so I'm, I have a college degree. And I didn't realize it at the time, but most of the people in there that were the guards, you know, didn't, weren't college educated. And um, so these guys would be asking me all this stuff about, you know, books and stuff I, I had been reading. So the common denominator that like broke through all these barriers is the fact that people of these different groups were interested in common things and I had studied a lot about these different things that they were asking about and and that was kind of like the uh, the icebreaker yeah. between you know each other. Now you have this guy talking to this guy about this or that and I saw something happen in there that didn't happen in any of these other tanks. It was very strange. But again, it was a, uh, uh, you know, the same knowledge is power. And I feel like that just by the knowledge I had on board, plus, you know, the stuff I was learning about during my time in there, because I did a lot of reading, um, I was able to share that knowledge for people that were hungry with it. And it helped me and my time get through a lot easier. And nobody ever, you know, tried to take my stuff. Nobody was picking on me. As a matter of fact, I, you know, people giving me stuff. Yeah, they viewed you as an asset. Yeah, right. You know, like some, yeah, something new and not not readily available. You know, in, in, in their normal environment. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and that's that's how I, I really uh, I was taken aback because you, know, you hear about all these stories about people going in having a hard time. Yeah, and, just, and it is, and I saw a lot of that go on. But, um, you know, in my given uh, area that I was assigned to, there was uh, no problems with any of the guys in it. And it just seems like they were just really hungry to learn. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, I, I had a, a more or less a blanket of protection throughout my time. I got out and God said, you're ready for this family now. So, you know, once I got uh, married and I had these two girls, it's been, man, it's just life has, has been on a... Um, just a steady uphill, amazing ride for me, man. And I couldn't be, you know, happier uh, now about how things are. Um, I may not be like monetarily uh, wealthy per se, right? But I feel rich because of the life I have, you know, and all the blessings I have. Like the, you know, I I got toys that, you know, I, there, there's really nothing that I, I I don't have already, right? That that I want out of life. So I figured I'd live my life, man. And, um, you know, if, uh, if this world was the end tomorrow, you know, I could, could say I've lived a fulfilled life, you know, um, done a lot of stupid stuff that I don't ever wish on anyone to do. And I, I, I paid for it dearly. And, uh, you know, and if anyone ever, you know, wants to reach out, you know, I'm leaving the door open for, for folks that may have a question, you know, and may you know, try to chase me down through the network or whatever, but um, I'm all about giving back, you know, helping out and seeing, you know, if a next man comes out and, and, you know, trying to do this or that, and if I have a way to, to steer them in the right direction, by all means, I, I, you know, I'll be glad to do so. My wife and I are, you know, active in the, the church here, and, and we, we try to do as much as, you know, um, our schedule allows us to do as far as giving back to the community and all that so we feel that that's important too um but uh you know just 
being positive and staying uh, even on days that you know you have bad news to hit you or adversity in one way or another. Um, I, I just treat that with um, positivity and move through it now. And it's amazing how everything just kind of rolls right off of me. And then I get showered with more blessings. And yeah. It's just, it's wild how that works. But but that's where I'm at today, man. And that's pretty much in a nutshell, um, my, you know, beginning to, through my troubled state, you know, of life and, um, you know, uh, sorry if I freaked anybody. Oh, man. Uh, I think it's that's listening to it. It's known me for years. And I <laughs> had no idea that, uh, that I went down this, you know, dark road once upon a time. But, um, you know, again, it was, it was worth it for me to share if it helped somebody out today, just to show them that there, there is hope for them. And, um, and there's paths set up for, uh, you know, to assist in, uh, in a better way for them. And uh, I don't want them to forget about that. And again, if I can, um, you know, remind anyone uh, of those directions, I uh, don't hesitate to reach out and I do, you know, everything I can. Man, I appreciate it. I think, I think I I just had this conversation um, on the last episode. It actually aired today with um, Brittany Reeves. She um she was you, you kept saying you're embarrassed, man. I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about because like without all that negativity and darkness in your past, you wouldn't have the tools you have today. You know what I mean? There, there's absolutely no way one you would appreciate what you have and what you do. That yeah. also no one else is going to without hearing this. No, it makes people appreciate you even more because they it makes you human. You know, when right. someone sees something and they see some someone successful, or they have these things. They got a plane. They do this. They, oh man, oh man, it must be nice. It 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 breaks the barrier of of you know them being able to relate to you. But whenever whenever you're stricken all the way back down and you strip it all away and you say, look. We all do dumb shit. Shit happens. Um, I can overcome my decisions. My decisions don't define me. Yes. You know, the position I may be in in a short amount of time doesn't define the rest of my being. You know, 15 months doesn't define the rest of my life. You know what I mean? And, and it also doesn't. It's something also for, I think, for children. Like, you can then say, look, I know what bad decisions do. You know what I mean? So I'm telling you not to make them, even though I know you may. I'm not someone just a bystander that knew somebody that knew someone else that went through this. I've been through these things. This is what happens when you do the wrong thing. You know, it just has more power. Just like your, your parent, you said your parents are great people. They raised you the right way. But imagine if they had been through some things where they say, look, this is what happens when you go through these things. You know, right. I just think that I don't think anything's embarrassment. I appreciate you for it. And I do. This is this will be 160 of these that I've done, and and along that path, um, they've become more and more in debt because I learn how to, to to listen more and talk less, but also take everything you give me and try to spit back out what I think that everyone needs to realize, and also maybe what people were thinking. And then I, I I think of questions that oh well, what if someone thinks this of what he told me, and what it all comes down to is like every single person has all these layers, and when you strip them all down, we're all the same. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And Everybody it, has a human yeah, yeah, we're all around. yeah, we're all human, but we're also like sitting down and having these conversations and learning about each other makes you just appreciate life. You don't you don't get caught up in the dumb shit. You don't get caught up in a in a title or what type of clothes you're wearing, what kind of vehicle you drive, or what your job position is. None of that shit even matters. It's yeah. it's that we're both human beings yes. and that that we can interact and you know appreciate life for what it is, but also at the same time like appreciate interaction. You know what I mean? 
and right. there's value to that and it's 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 becoming more and more uh rare because of the mentality of everyone wanting information immediately and not not really just jumping on to some type of ideology and running with it not really investigating things and not like you said not not reading and understanding you you saw the thirst of knowledge like imagine what imagine if if there was someone like you put in every single one of those penitentiaries what it would do you don't even know how many people you may have affected positively coming out of that place giving someone hope that they never would have had because they didn't have any information imagine being in a in a in a position in a neighborhood where you never have access to anything and all you know is crime and poverty and rape and drugs and you know and gunfire you know whatever and then you go into somewhere where everyone else that's all they know and if they're never blessed with someone to come in and say look guys there's a lot more to life than this no. did you know this about this did you know yeah did you did you know all these things and, yeah. and it's not no fault of their own it's just a product of their environment so like you don't know then the embarrassment i refuse to accept that bro it's not an embarrassment and you don't know how many people may have come out of there with a different ideology than when they went in because you most certainly did you know what i mean yeah it, it, you know and i guess when i say embarrassment the the embarrassment was during that time i i actually sobered up and i was like right right you were embarrassed in the moment you were embarrassed in the moment and so you're looking about thinking about that embarrassment in the moment yeah that's i guess that but now it's like just pure reflection and and, you know it is and it just shows you that no matter how perfect you look at some guy and he's like oh the perfect specimen this is mr business blah blah blah. believe it or not he's human too yeah there's there's a you know there's a flaw somewhere down the line um you know everybody it may, if not themselves, they have a friend or a family member that, that deals with, you know, some type of struggle like this. And, uh, and nobody's perfect, no matter how well they can put their poker face on in public and look just flawless. You know, um, it's, again, it's a face that, that people have to put on and, and go throughout their day with. But behind that, you know, everybody has some kind of issues that they're, they're dealing with. And um, I was doing a job recently and it was in a bad part of town here, over in Queensboro. And we needed some extra help. So this, this, this guy was um, you know, walking down the street and the guy that lived in the house where we were working knew this, this guy. was like, hey, can you come help us? So he comes out and starts talking. And I could tell just from a few words that, that he had done some time. Right. So I asked him, I said, you know, I said, have you, uh, you, you've been in the, the penitentiary. He said, yep, I just got out. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I've been out a week. I said, no kidding, man. I said, uh, uh, what for, you know, if you don't mind me asking. And he kind of hesitated for a minute, you know. And he said, armed robbery. And um, I said, man, I, I understand, you know, what you're going through right now. I said, but uh, I feel like I need to tell you this. And uh, you don't need to lose hope in um, your, your daily uh, grind because what you're doing right now, and he was helping, helping us like clean out of a garage, right? An old junk garage that you know, nobody wants to touch. I said, brother, find something that no one else is doing and that's where you're gonna make your money. Yeah. If you can get into an area where not a lot of people are operating in. So 
it hit him. I said, man, look, all these people have a trash can every week they roll out to the corner. Nobody ever cleans those trash cans out. Some of them are horrific. You know, I'm not telling you to go start a business like this, but I'm giving you yeah. an idea. Not many people are going around cleaning these trash cans out. Hardly anybody wants to do that. And it was like a light bulb came on in his mind. I said, man, you don't have to go and apply and work for someone. Like, they want you to think. You can be your own boss. You can start your own business and go around and clean out these garages or shops and, and just do stuff that no one else is doing. And the man just literally lit up and he said, man, you just gave me chill bumps. And it was like, like I just, I don't know, uh, turned the switch on in his brain. And uh, when he left that day, I thought, man, that'd be really cool, you know, if, yeah. if, if that turn turned into something. And I kid you not, man, three days ago, I'm driving through that bad part of town. I see him out there cleaning somebody's garage. No right? shit. Look at there, bro. See? Dude, I got chill bumps right See? Now, dude. Look at there. Like, Look at there. Whoa. You know? There's, so, yeah, there's, there's opportunity. There's no excuse. There's opportunity everywhere. Um, but sometimes... Like you said, that we fall under bad circumstances. You make a bad yeah. decision, and it and it fogs your you know trajectory or whatever it may be. That's right, That's man. Right. We gotta wrap this thing up. Yeah, man. Uh, we're doing another one. We're doing another one because uh, we still got some stuff to talk about. We still got to talk about some aliens and some plane flying because we didn't get to that today. Oh yeah, well uh, that will be for you know definitely another episode. Oh, yeah, and you know that just happened to be the uh, common denominator that, that i was being asked so many questions about and oh i know i want to talk about that next i knew that was coming i was like oh, we got to do that but for yeah, sure we've uh that's a whole other episode in itself yeah and um you know my wife thinks i'm nuts because uh you know, aliens come up uh you know from time to time and uh she just has to shake her head there you go uh, but anyway yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, and, you know, again, uh, I, I did this for, you know, let folks know if uh, if they need a, a direction to go in, they have questions, don't hesitate, you know, reach out. And I'm more than happy to help and give back. So awesome, man. God did it for me and um, and basically gave me the blueprint to uh, to go and help anybody else out that, yeah. that I can. So. A lot of people, have, you know, have a great idea. Like, man, how'd you get a patent? You know, what does it take to do a patent? See, I've been there, done that. I've, I've been down a bunch of these roads that that I thought were never possible, you know. And then, and now it's like, okay, yeah, you got to do this, this, and this. And but, uh, but anyway, man, thank you so much. Yes, sir. And I appreciate you. It was a pleasure, bro. Time today with me, and let me know when you want to do another one. Awesome.